came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio We'd like to apologise for this podcast coming out a little bit late. We've been having some bandwidth issues here that also affected the Skype quality of our call in our previous episode. We'd like to thank Olivier Pasquet, who's a French artist living in Berlin, who contacted us with some very helpful suggestions to get around bandwidth problems. We happen to be living in a bandwidth-impaired area in rural Victoria in southeast Australia, so we're working through that. Enjoy. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcast. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday the 8th of June 2018. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And today our feature interview is with someone you know very well. Dr Ian Musgrave will present an astrophotography special. He will also present his usual segment, What's Up Doc? where he tells us what's up in the morning, evening and night skies for the next two weeks. And we finish up with some Astro News highlights, bringing you the latest discoveries in this golden age of astronomy and space science. So let's cross over to Adelaide now in South Australia to speak with Dr Ian Astroblog Musgrove. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's it going? Very good, thanks, Ian. Now, about 12 months ago, in episode 39, we did a feature episode with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrove. For those new to Astrophys, Ian is a senior lecturer in pharmacology at the University of Adelaide, a 2017 unsung hero of Science Communication Award winner, the author of Southern Skywatch, the author of his comprehensive Astro blog, the iTelescope blog, and his blog at The Conversation. So today we're doing another special episode with Ian. Now this is a double episode for amateur astronomers and keen observers. First, Ian will tell us how we can take stunning astrophotography images even if you don't own high-end instruments. And then he'll give us his usual update, What's Up Doc?, where he tells us what to look for in the evening, night and morning skies. So, hey Ian, how are you doing? And what do you have for us in this episode? I have a variety of things in this episode. When we think about stunning images of the night sky, we think of things that come out of the... Hubble Space Telescope or similar telescopes, big-end professional telescopes if you've ever seen them, 
they're really amazing images of the Orion Nebula. These are truly stunning images. But for the amateur who has modest equipment, taking images can be a little bit more tricky. What we see through the telescope and what we can capture with our various cameras and images are maybe uh, less than uh, amazing. But you can still do quite a lot. One of the things that you need to think about is what are you looking for? Do you want to look for planetary action? Are you looking for deep sky objects? People tend to ignore the moon, but the moon is a constant source of, of wonder. Every time you take an image, it will be slightly different. The moon will be in slightly differently vibrated. You can catch the shadows of the craters as the sun rises on them. There's also the famous lunar X structure, which can only be caught at certain times. So there's a range of things that you can catch on the moon with only very modest equipment. Now, I'm going to assume that most people have a telescope of some sort, and that's the absolute minimum you need is a modest-sized telescope. If you have a clock drive of some sort that is able to drive the telescope across the heavens, then that makes it easier. One of the big problems with taking photographs through telescopes is, of course, that the more you magnify the image, the more you magnify the effect of the Earth rotating. So if you stick your telescope without a motor drive and point it at something like the moon or any bright star or planet under light magnification, it pretty much stays where it is. The more you magnify, the sooner it moves out of your field of view. So taking photographs is going to be a little bit more tricky. If you have a clock drive, of course, you can drive your telescope so that it follows the motion of the stars and planets and so that the image stays fairly firmly in the middle of your eyepiece. But even if you don't have uh, time drive, you can still do interesting things. And this is where things that you don't think of come into. The first thing we need to think of is having a good star map. A lot of the really interesting things you can take photographs of the sky with when planets come very close to other interesting objects. Some of the most spectacular images, one that I was reminded of only last night, was the occultation of Saturn we saw here in Australia. And by catching the approach of Saturn to the moon and then having Saturn go behind the moon, is something that can be captured with relatively simple equipment. And by knowing when it's going to happen and looking for it, you can catch something that's really stunning. Part of getting a stunning image is thinking about what it is you want to take. It's all very well to have a bright planet in the middle of your telescope, and that's really nice. At the moment, there's a whole range of interesting things that are happening where you don't even need a huge magnification. Saturn and the globular cluster M22. M22 is a very bright globular cluster, a magnificent telescopic piece, and Saturn's quite close to it. By juggling it around, you can get a reasonable magnification of Saturn and the cluster together, and so you was a very beautiful composition without having to have an enormous telescope with enormous magnification. Yep. So you need a good astronomy program where you can look out for close approaches of bright planets to interesting objects, other uh, clusters, other planets. So if you've got a good piece of astronomy software so you can work out where bright objects are going to be close together or when bright planets will be occulted by the moon, 
this is very worrying. So you have to plan reasonably far ahead to get this. For example, the most stunning image I've seen recently was an image of a partial eclipse of the sun. Unlike a full solar eclipse, where all of the sun is behind the moon in an annulunar eclipse, you have a thin rim of sun around the moon. So planning is important. At the moment, for example, Jupiter is very close to uh, Zubin Wibbly. That's really interesting to a telescope. It's not, it's not a Hubble image, gorgeous colours everywhere, but you'll have the beautiful Jupiter, the bright Galileo moons, and a beautiful double star all in the same field. What about stacking software? For stacking, I use two main pieces of software. I use Deep Sky Stacker for stars and um, nebula, and I use Registacks for planets. The reason for this is they have different algorithms for tracking their objects. And Registax is designed for picking up multiple features and allowing the features to be overlaid. And so that um, if you've taken, say, multiple images or if you take a video, what I do for my planetary imaging is I take short videos of the planets because they're, going, they're moving across my eyepiece field of view even on my big telescope, which has a tracking drive on it, because it's tracking only in one direction, and because my polar alignment isn't perfect, it tends to drift a little bit away from the equatorial tracking. So I use Registrax to overlay the images, and you get some beautiful effects. But even in my little four-inch telescope, by taking a video of the planet that I'm following, even though it's not tracking, and the planet's moving across the eyepiece, the video allows me to create lots and lots of frames which then get snapped in uh, Registacks, and so you get some fantastic images of Jupiter and its moons. Saturn's never been quite as successful for me on the 4-inch, but they've got a lot of issues with um, turbulence. I've got some beautiful images of the moon, and I've made uh, a number of lunar mosaics uh, different scales uh, through the use of Registax. Registax is very, very good. Deep Sky Stacker has been very useful to me too. I tend to use it on images that I've, just, I've taken uh, very, when I'm just taking photographs of the sky. Quite often I take multiple images of, of, say, Scorpio. I want to be able to create some really deep images of Scorpio and all the constellations, all the clusters around it. I take six, 15 second exposures. That's enough to um, capture the images without them, uh, drifting too much. And then I stack them in Deep Sky Stacker. I can bring out huge amounts of detail around Scorpius. And, and you have this rather large scale image, especially around uh, Sagittarius with the, with the centre of our galaxy there, you can create truly gorgeous images with a very simple camera, taking images of no more than 15 seconds duration and uh, stacking them with Deep Sky Stacker. I, I also use it for when I'm doing stacking images of the International Space Station. The good thing about Deep Sky Stacker is it can account for Earth's rotation. If you use something like Image J, for example, which is another program which I use quite a bit, you'll find that it can't handle the fact that the sky is rotating, so you'll get some smearing of the images in image J. For a number of short exposures, it's really good. 
But if you've got lots of exposures, uh, the field rotation becomes really obvious. So deep sky stacker, I found to be very, very, very good. Also, if I'm taking images with remote telescopes, I can use that to, to um, account for uh, some of the field rotation you see uh, when you're taking images at different times because it, typically um, the multiple short images stack quite nicely uh, under normal circumstances. If you're taking images a couple of nights apart, you'll find Deep Sky Stacker can deal with it because you never never can take it at exactly the same time. There'll always be that little bit of field rotation. So you can play with that. So software is really important. Now, I've only mentioned that these two, they're the ones that I have lots of experience with, but you'll find there's a number of other stackers out there which will uh, give you a, a nice effect. But again, Deep Sky Stacker and Registacks are both free and well supported. You can easily play with them and get some, uh, some good effects. Another piece of software is image manipulation software. And there's a range of ones you can use. I use ImageJ, which is a free piece of software from the National Institutes of Health. It's designed to do lots of things. So I've used it at work for tracking Western blots. I use it at home for dealing with astronomy images. It's a, it also handles uh, one of the major formats that you have coming out of a telescope is the bits format. And so we can handle bits format. But it's also good for doing a range of things like stacking, animation, playing around with the image, try and sharpen and darken it. Another program I use is the GIMP a very nice little image manipulation program. Quite often you need to sharpen or increase contrast or stack images, and the GIMP's very good for that. It's completely free. Photoshop, of course, is the industry standard, and it has so many bells and whistles and buttons that you can't even begin to describe it. But Photoshop costs money. So for those of you who are into low-cost image manipulation, the GIMP and ImageJ will do 99.9% of the things that you really that you want to do. And for really advanced people, Photoshop is probably the way to go. Also, Pix Insight, which is a almost dedicated astrophotography program. Again, it costs. You really want to take your images a little bit further than getting uh, Photoshop or Pixel Insight is that's it, it'll be worth your while. But when you're learning, practice on the free ones first. <laughs> and there's some people I think might over-process their images. I've seen some images that have been over-processed in Photoshop and Lightroom as well. What's your advice on the level of processing to take, Ian? My advice is to use as little as possible. Uh, my major processing is to increase the contrast so you can see dimmer elements, especially for processing for Mars. You're trying to make the dark regions come out from the lighter regions. As soon as it looks like you've got little lines around your images, are you going too far? For colours, I'm not a good person to talk to about colours because I'm red green colourblind. And every time I try and do serious colour imaging, I end up with a garish nightmare of psychedelic colours. But my advice is, if your colours start leaping out at you and banging on your eyeballs, you've gone too far. Try for, try for something a little muted. Uh, the colours will speak for themselves. 
Um, so we've dealt with images for processing, we've dealt with programs for planning, we've dealt with dealing with the fact that if you don't have a mode drive for your telescope, your images will drift. And the point of view of, of doing something simple, start off with the simplest possible process. You, if you have a simple telescope without a drive, you work with that, and you can add on things later. Get used to your telescope get used to your imaging system. You know, you maybe want to do all these really fantastic things, but try the simple stuff first, and you'll find it's quite an enjoying journey. I spent most of my early imaging of the moon, and like I said, the moon is vastly underappreciated, and you could, but you can do all sorts of wonderful things with moon images, make giant mosaics, do animations of sunrise on the moon, pick out areas to look at in greater depth, all of these things, and the moon will always reward you, be it in in-depth images of the uh, cratered poles, or watching it, a, a lunar halo, or uh, watching an eclipse. All of these things will repay you immensely, and you get to and, and the image kind of imaging you will do for a lunar eclipse, for example, will be different to the kind of imaging you will do for in-depth exploration of craters. So again. Think about what you want to achieve. There's so many different things you, you can achieve with astronomical objects when you think about what you can see. So start off with something really simple with the moon. Most other things, the moon is a good thing to practice on because you can you get a feel for your telescope of what are its limitations, what's its capabilities, and the more you image with the moon, the more you get a feel for the processing power of your imaging systems. And we're going to talk cameras in a moment because after all, it's, it's one, one thing to have a telescope uh, and all this fancy software, but you've got to be able to take photographs in the first place. So I think when I initially talked about this, I talked about camera adapters and uh, where you could uh, take a simple point-and-shoot camera and with the camera adapters, uh, whack it on your uh, telescope uh, and take photographs to your heart's content. In that time, mobile phone cameras have zoomed ahead. I also would have talked uh, then about uh, using a mobile phone camera by simply holding it up to your uh, your eyepiece and taking a shot. But now you can get adapters for mobile phones. You can get specific adapters for the iPhone. There's now a whole range of adapters for telescopes, for different kinds of phones. There's a very simple one you can get from Australian Geographic. For those of us in Australia, for those overseas, you may find it a little bit hard to locate these things. But it's basically uh, a, a very lightweight, massive suction caps which you stick on the back of your mobile phone uh, with a uh, eyepiece adapter, and then you just uh, screw it. Uh, you locate where your, your eyepiece hole is and you screw it on and bombs your uncle. There's other more complicated ones where you've probably seen the adapters where you can put your mobile phone on a tripod. They're very similar to them where you, where you can have a quite strong holder which can then screw on to an adapter. So you have a whole range of simple ones and highly complex ones. The good advantage of uh, the telescope mobile phone adapters uh, with the modern mobile phones is it makes it a lot easier to show people what you're doing. <laughs> it's, it's really uh, one of the joys of uh, having a telescope is showing other people 
what you can see through them, and, and these things make it so much easier. If you've got a, a simple point-click camera like mine, the display image on the back of the camera is pretty shoddy, but the actual image it takes is really good. Whereas the mobile phone, phone cameras, you can see high-quality displays directly in front of you, and that's really something. So with the level and quality of the uh, mobile phones, you can move a lot of your imaging, uh, simple imaging, to uh, mobile phones. And so, again, the problem, part of the problem with mobile phones is that you may have to fiddle around with the exposure characteristics. Different phones have, have different capabilities. Uh, if you have an iPhone, for example, it's got bells and whistles coming off, but I have a, an Android phone, and if you just stick it on, on the uh, telescope and stick it on the moon, it'll be overexposed and um, may not necessarily want to focus big problem with many mobile phones is they want to autofocus and if you're trying for stars, the autofocus uh, may just try and try and try and not focus. Some of them will have a, a landscape mode which will set the focus at infinity, use that. And you can also adjust the white balance, like adjust the exposure times, which is really good. The problem with my point-and-click uh, camera is I've got a range of exposure times but it's not a bit a wide enough range. So if I want to take some long-term deep sky exposures, I'm pretty much stuck with 15 uh, seconds, which is convenient because of the amount of time it takes to for the sky to rotate. I'm just taking dual pictures, but if I've got the telescope uh, tracking on, I'd like to be able to take longer exposures than 15 seconds. Whereas with the, uh, the mobile phone, I can go down to very, very tiny fractions of a second with stacking, it's not too much of a problem. You just take lots and lots of images. And with burst mode on the mobile phones, you're able to take a large number of, of images, uh, one after the other. Well, Ian, they say that science is about standing on the shoulders of giants. And a lot of people listening to this have probably seen some wonderful photos or images taken by people like Damien Peach and Sean Duran or Doran who plug into some of the satellites that are available. They don't have a lot of equipment themselves, but they appear to be able to grab images from various satellites and then process them and come up with some amazing images. Can you tell us about that? There's an enormous number of spacecraft out there which have their outputs readily available to the public. Probably the most amazing ones uh, at the moment is JunoCam. JunoCam is a, a medium-resolution camera that's on the Juno spacecraft. So every time Juno makes a pass of Jupiter, as well as the high-quality science-grade images that are coming out, you also have JunoCam. And JunoCam is interesting not only because uh, it makes all its images available to amateurs straight away, so you're able to download them, assemble them, play with them, and truly incredible photographs of what's going on in, in Juno. And there's so many images that uh, almost everyone can, can uh, be developing their own personalised shot of Jupiter. And as well as Juno uh, taking all these images, uh, they uh, get input from the public, so the public can say what they would like to see imaged. 
So if you go to the JunoCam website, you simply type in JunoCam into your favourite web browser and it will take you to the JunoCam community where amateurs can vote for what they want JunoCam to look at. So JunoCam is probably the best highly colourful, fantastic images. Another one is the Mars VMC camera. Now, the Mars VMC camera, it's basically a webcam, but it was a webcam that was put on Mars Express to monitor the separation of the big lander. But it's still there and it's still taking photographs of Mars and they've made the archive of the images open to everybody. So you can download all the raw images and you can make create your own images of Mars and you can pull out great shots of Mars. They're relatively small images, basically webcam. I've got an image of one of the volcanoes on Mars uh, and also the, some of the uh, volcano complexes. And because the Mars Express is continually changing its orbit as it's going around Mars in order to image different things, you'll get different aspects and angles of Mars. So uh, Mars, Mars VMC webcam is another a place where you can get some really nice images. And there's still lots and lots of, of raw images on the Cassini site too. So if you go to the Cassini site, there's a huge uh, number of raw images there, which you can download and assemble uh, into planetary imaging as well. The Rosetta mission, there's a bunch of, of images that you can get a hold of through the Rosetta mission if you're interested in uh, looking at what's going on on the comet. In fact, uh, about a month ago, a series of images was, uh, was uh, released by an amateur and uh, pulled down a, a bunch of the latest high-quality uh, images that have been released by the ESA and made them into an animation. And it's this brilliant animation of what's basically a snowstorm on a, on a comet. Uh, so you get to see the dust particles flying around uh, at the same time as in the background. You can see the, I think it's the beehive cluster uh, going past as the comet rotates. Uh, so you, it's the most amazing thing. And there's lots and lots of images that are still there that require a bit of patience, a bit of thought to pull out and pull out some really interesting things. And so they're, they're quite high detail. The Jupiter and Cassini images uh, are very high detail. Uh, the Mars VMC, not so much high detail, but I'm looking at an uh, image of uh, Ballas Marinensis right now uh, taken from the VMC camera, which is beautiful, absolutely beautiful. So there's lots of things you can do with satellite images. My favourite satellite image after that is the Stereo spacecraft. Now, I'm familiar with the Stereo spacecraft. The Stereo spacecraft, in case anyone doesn't remember, were a pair of spacecraft that were launched in order to take stereo images of the solar corona and to understand the evolution of coronal mass ejections and other solar wind phenomena. Then amateurs discovered you could find comets in them. And so there's a little cottage image industry amongst amateur comet people to search for comets in stereo images, and I've got quite a few on my website. The stereo images aren't that stunning in turn because it's basically, uh, again, uh, it's a, it's, it has a resolution of a fairly good set of binoculars, 
but if you play with the images, you can get some quite nice effects. Uh, very recently, the, the centre of the Milky Way drifted past the stereo images, and so you can pick up quite a bit of detail there in the stereo images. But that's not all. But you can pick up a lot of other things. Variable stars. You can pick up variable stars in the stereo images, so you can do citizen science on variable stars. It requires a little bit of, uh, of uh, playing around to be able to do accurate magnitude uh, estimates on stars, but you can do that with, uh, with appropriate reference stars. Because of the rate at which it drifts, the long period variables are not so useful, but you're, uh, you can pick up things like the algal style variables. I've picked up uh, our toroid uh, in the stereo images, and it, it, it's really quite <laughs> amazing watching it uh, flash on and off as it passes through the field of view. Uh, also, Nova, um, if, uh, by carefully looking at the images, you might be able to discover uh, Nova, maybe even a supernova. The um, brightness, the, the brightest images of star images are greatly overexposed, but you can go down to about magnitude 13 uh, in the stereo images, which allows you to pick up um, some uh, Nova quite easily. So variable stars, Nova. Um, so stereo, comets, beautiful images of comets. Uh, you can look at the centre of the galaxy quite easily and pick up variable stars and possibly even find a Nova or two. So a range of spacecraft out there that you can use to find things and produce beautiful images and, and even do some citizen science. So even if you don't have a telescope, you can use these uh, these free spacecraft images to uh, satisfy your uh, your scientific and astronomical curiosity. Fantastic, Ian. And for right now, could you tell us what's up in the sky this week, Ian? What's up in the sky? So many things. At the moment, if you're looking to the west in the setting twilight, you'll see bright Venus. In fact, Venus is now getting so bright that it's potentially uh, you're potentially able to see it before sunset. It's certainly by by sunset it's uh, bright enough to see, but you might be able to see it before sunset if you know where to look. Yep. And on the 16th, you'll have a very good opportunity. On the 16th, the crescent moon is very close to Venus, and so before the uh, sun sets, find a nice big building or something like that and, and uh, block the sun out with the big building. Look for the moon, the thin crescent moon. Just above that will be Venus. So if you could find the thin crescent moon, Venus will be just above that. And you should be able to see that before sunset. And definitely by sunset, both the moon and Venus will be really obvious. And as Venus gets brighter and brighter, you'll be able to see it earlier and earlier in the evening. In fact, you may be able to see it for most of the day if you know where to look. So Venus is really bright now. But if you are watching Venus at the moment, you may notice it's not too far away from a, a bright star, and that's Pollux, the brightest star in uh, the constellation of Gemini the Twins. If you're looking around about an hour after sunset, you should be able to see both Castor and Pollux the Twins and Venus closing in on them. So Venus is going to be coming really close to Pollux, and that's about on the 8th and 9th, Castor and Pollux will become a triplet 
of Linus, Castor and Pollux. You will have to have a fairly low horizon to fully appreciate that. And now Venus is then heads off towards the constellation of Cancer. By the, the 18th, it will be getting very close to the unaided eye cluster M44 or the Beehive. It's going to be close enough to graze the bottom of the Beehive for our next episode. So I'll talk about that, uh, that some more. But it's something that you can uh, look forward to. And if you sweep up from, if you've got a pair of binoculars, you sweep up from Venus towards Cancer, you should see it, uh, should see the beehive cluster there. After the, the 13th of June, you should be able to see the pair of the, the cluster and Venus coming closer and closer together. Fantastic. And when I went out tonight, I faced north and looked and I saw Venus at my left shoulder. Then I turned around and faced right and I could see over my right shoulder, high up, there was Jupiter. Yes, indeed. And you'll be able to see that for quite some time. It was uh, most more, uh, more impressive uh, a little bit earlier on when uh, Jupiter was at opposition so that you really have... Venus setting just as Jupiter was rising, but still at the moment you've got you've got uh, uh, bright Venus and uh, bright Jupiter almost directly opposite each other. Jupiter is getting higher and higher, but this is for uh, I'll talk again more about this in next week's program. But Saturn is coming up to opposition, and again you'll with Saturn as that opposition, you'll have the enjoyment of uh, looking at Venus setting, turning around, seeing Jupiter high in the northern sky and then following that down and seeing uh, Saturn rising. So you'll have three bright planets uh, visible at, uh, at the same time, which will be quite, quite amazing. Now, I talked about Jupiter and Zoom and Google. There's a whole range of different images we can take. It's, uh, we don't just have to try and replicate the, the Hubble and spacecraft images with a mobile phone and a uh, four-inch telescope. You can't, of course, but you can do some really amazing things with modern software. But at the moment, Jupiter is very close to the pair of Alpha 1 and Alpha 2 uh, Lumbrae. Over the week, it will slowly move away, but it's still going to be quite close for some time. So the pair look very nice together, and they look very nice in uh, wide-field telescope objectives and binoculars. With a wide-piece telescope objective, you should be able to get both the double star and Jupiter's moons. You may not see too much detail in Jupiter itself, but it's well worth having a go. Very good. And what about the morning skies, Ian? The morning skies still has Saturn, Mars. Jupiter is setting in the early morning, but if you're up early, you can still see Jupiter, and you'll have the bright planet Saturn and Mars to go with it. But what you won't have is Mercury. Mercury is now sunk below the horizon and it won't come back for some time. In the middle of this month, it'll start becoming visible. But towards the end of the month, uh, it'll be visible in the evening sky. So you'll have this uh, wonderful lineup of Mercury, Venus, Jupiter, Saturn and Mars. And what we have is we've got a series of oppositions. We've just had the opposition of Jupiter on the 9th of May. We're going to have the opposition of Saturn later on this month, the 27th of June, and, um, and then we'll have the opposition of Mars in July. So we've got multiple uh, oppositions coming up. We'll have some really bright planets in the sky, 
And so we can look forward to lots of planetary action. And that is the opposition that occurs on June the 20th. And that is the opposition of the asteroid 4 Vesta. Now, 4 Vesta is the fourth asteroid that was discovered. It's one of the larger asteroids. It was the, one of the first asteroids that was visited by the Dawn mission. Is that it's, it becomes bright enough to see with the unaided eye. Not very bright, but bright enough to see. As we know, this year Mars is going to uh, have the best opposition since 2003. This is when its perihelion matches our aphelion. And it's a similar thing with, um, with Vesta. And this year Vesta is the best opposition uh, since 2000. And it will be the best opposition until 2029. It will reach a magnitude of approximately 5.3. Uh, should be readily visible to the unaided eye under dark sky conditions and might be visible to the unaided eye suburban sky conditions, depending on exactly how bright your suburb is. So, Ian, if listeners wanted to observe Vesta, it would be important that they would know where and when to look. How would they do this? Uh, at the moment, you start looking after 9 o'clock and your guidepost is Saturn. If you take a pair of binoculars and sweep to the north from Saturn, you'll come across a broad open cluster called M24. At the top end of M24 is a, a star or an object that's brighter than the stars of M24 itself. And if you watch this over the next few nights, you'll see that that object moves. That's Vesta. Later on, you can triangulate Vesta with uh, the bright star Mu Sagittarii. Mu Sagittarii is the star that forms the lid of the teapot of Sagittarius. And you can use Saturn and Mu Sagittarii to triangulate and find Vesta. So if you draw an imaginary triangle um, with a line, lines coming from um, Mu Sagittarii and Saturn, where those lines meet is roughly uh, around about M24, is where Vesta will be. It gets a bit exciting later on uh, as uh, Vesta gets brighter and brighter. It gets exciting later on because Vesta will uh, come very close to a dim open cluster called M23, but that's not so exciting. It's a dim cluster. It's not very very exciting except to, to hardcore deep sky observers. <laughs> but it's going to go past the Trippin Nebula. Now, the Trippin and Lagoon Nebulas are two icons of the sky, um, beautiful extended masses of gas and stars. And again, if you've got a wide field objective, you'll be able to get the, the edge of the Trippin Nebula and Vesta together as it goes past. And it will certainly look very nice in binoculars. What software do you use, Ian, to predict where various objects are going to be? I use two pieces of software. SkyMap Pro for all my heavy-duty projects, and Stellarium's free. It's photorealistic. It's very good for things like Vesta and the and the close approach to the Nebula. And I heartily recommend Cast to Seal is also a, a free um, planetarium software, which is very useful indeed. So I hope everyone's going to have a wonderful time and go out up for Vesta and maybe people can show us some images if they manage to take images of Vesta. 
That's wonderful, and what a great mixture of challenges and opportunities you've given us in this episode. Thank you so much, Ian Astroblog Musgrove. It's been a pleasure. Good night, Ian. Good night, mate. Catch you later. And here's our astonishing breakthrough news for this episode. This is via manyworlds.space. A decades-long quest for incontrovertible and complex Martian organics, the chemical building blocks of life, is over. After almost six years of searching, drilling and analysing on Mars, the Curiosity rover team has conclusively detected three types of naturally occurring organics that had not been identified before on the planet. The Mars Organics Science Paper by NASA's Jennifer Eigenbrode and much of the rover's sample analysis on Mars, SAM, instrument team, was twinned with another paper describing the discovery of a seasonal pattern to the release of a simple organic gas, methane, on Mars. This finding is also a major step forward, not only because it provides ground truth for the difficult question of whether significant amounts of methane are in the Martian atmosphere, but equally important, it determines that methane concentrations appear to change with the seasons. The implications of that seasonality are intriguing, to say the least. In an accompanying opinion piece in Science, Inges Lowers Ten Kate of Utrecht University in Netherlands wrote of the two papers, Both these findings are breakthroughs in astrobiology. The clear conclusion of these and other recent findings is that Mars is not a dead planet where little ever changes. Rather, it's one with cycles that appear to produce not only methane, but also sporadic surface water. So our quest to find life beyond Earth inches another step forward towards the inevitable question, are we alone? See you in two weeks. Radio Wave.